If you'd turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is how it's going to go from here on out because I have lots of time. We're doing a Bible study on one word. <laughs> Couldn't get past the one word, so. No, I'm just kidding. But very, very excited about this, this particular chapter. Uh, today, the supremacy of love, part one. And as we, as we join our hearts and our minds together around this passage of scripture, I will tell you that one of the one of the wonderful things for me as a pastor that I am uh, that I am told constantly uh, by people who come here and visit here and meet you all and fellowship with you is this is the most loving church that they've ever been to, and that is about as great a compliment as can be paid to anyone ever anywhere who's in ministry. It, it doesn't get any better than that because love ultimately is the main thing. Love is what put Jesus on the cross. Love is what has caused the forgiveness of sin. Love is what binds us together. This, the substance of all that God is can be put into one word, love. And in fact, Scripture does that, and we'll look at that chapter here in just a moment. But the church could have all kinds of wonderful buildings and all kinds of great vehicles, and we could do lots of PowerPoint, and we could have all kinds of things. And as we begin this chapter here in 1 Corinthians 13, it becomes very clear that if you divorce the ministry and love, you've lost the ministry. If you divorce love from everything that we declare as the church, as the body of Christ, as God's kids, and it's not pleasing to God. You can be a hundred percent accurate. You can absolutely have the truth and not have love, and it won't bring honor and glory to the Lord. You can have all of the riches in the world and not have love, and they're useless. Love is the main thing. And as we spend the next several studies here in this chapter, I hope that what we walk away with it from what what happens in us is a deep refreshing return to the love of God because if we do that then everything else works if we are that then everything that we are brings honor to the Lord and so would you pray with me father i just thank you for this church Lord, I thank you for this body. And Lord, as we now turn our attention to your word and we ponder the powerful principles, as we lean on your unfailing love, as we spend these moments that we'll have this morning thinking about you and how much you love us, God, would you would you cause us to be more loving? Would, would you... Work in our marriages. Would you work in us as parents? Would you work in our friendships? Would you work in the workplace? God, would you open up the doors of heaven and pour out upon us a love that can't be contained? Lord Jesus, we, we don't even have words to express the love that we have for what you are in our lives. And we pray that as we study, you would just simply increase our love. 
We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, but really just one word. And notice how Paul draws our attention. You remember how he finished the last chapter. It says, and yet I'll show you a more excellent way. That is the reference here. As chapter 13 begins, it is the more excellent way that's referenced in chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the response to all of that giftedness we saw in chapter 12. As chapter 12 unfolds and you see all these things that the body of Christ can be, that there's apostles and prophets and teachers and helps and governments and all these wonderful gifts and these things that are used in the church, what Paul goes on to say is, now let's really pare this down. Let's make it so we all get it. Let's make sure that we keep the number one thing, the number one thing. And though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, make sure you read that correctly. It's not one or the other, it's both. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I could speak every language on earth, if I could speak the language of heaven, if I knew how to communicate with every being in the known universe... And have not love. You see what he goes on now to say with the rest of the chapter, and as we focus and will focus next week on what love is not, is that you can be very gifted. You can have all kinds of things going for you. You can be in a vibrant church. You can have physical resources. You can have spiritual resources. God can have gifted you in amazing ways, but absent love, it's as a sounding brass, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. It's irritating. It's piercing. It hurts, and nobody wants to hear it. Without love, even the gospel, which is the good news, amen, Do you realize that the word gospel, actually in a Hebrew sense, the word that is translated most often from Hebrew to gospel, is actually invitation? It's an invitation of love that God sent us through the gospel. That even the invitation of love, and perhaps you've met some of those people that managed to change the gospel, which is that good news, that invitation to come, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They even managed to put that out unlovingly to where no one wants it. It comes across as legalism. It comes across as dogmatism. You see, love is what we are about. That's what we're about. It's the one centrally attractive thing that the body of Christ has. Because I don't care who you are. You have to have something seriously wrong with you to not be attracted by love. Because it's innate within humankind. We're attracted to love, amen? Yes, we're attracted to two cute puppies. 
We're attracted to, you know, world peace. We're attracted to whales and dolphins. We're attracted to all kinds of things. But we're talking about love here. Agape love. One very specific kind of love. John, in his letters in 1 John chapter 4, said this beginning in verse 7. It's one of those passages that if you don't have it highlighted yet, highlight it. If you don't have it underlined, underline it. If you don't have it circled, circle it because it was written to you. It's God's love letter. And it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. All love has come from It was invented by God. He made love. He understands it. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the word that's translated here is agape. It's not eros. It's not phileo. It's not passion. It's not friendship. It is agape. I agape owe you. God says to you this morning, I love you with an undying love. I love you with a tested love. I love you with an enduring love. I love you with a consuming love. I love you with a magnificent love. I love you with a love that will allow you to even spit on me and I will still love you. That love. Not the world's love. For he who does not love does not know God. These are tough statements to hear. You really can't name the name of Jesus and be unloving. Because it's contrary to your new nature in Christ. That's why. It's not that some Christians don't. It's not that we don't fail at times. But nothing so marks us as the love of God. Amen? Nothing does. Not a teaching gift. Not a gift of prophecy. Not the gift of tongues. Not a building, not a grand ministry, not how many books you've written, but how much you love. How much you care at a level that you're willing to say, even if it costs me everything, I will love. And in this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Do you realize what's being said there? If you were with us on Wednesday, Daniel chapter 7, a very wonderful passage there beginning in verse 13. On through the next several verses. And one who is like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given the power and the glory and the honor. God, from the very beginning, poured out his love upon us in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world. There was always a plan. Satan could never win. Though we are failed and flawed, God's always had a way to solve our problem, and it's called His love. That we might live through Him, for in this is love. Not that we loved God, because frankly, that's actually pretty easy. 
because God is providentially caring. He loves us in spite of us. Our natural response actually is to love God. But not so much me. I'm unloving at times. You guys understand that, I think. I'm not worthy of love at times. As a matter of fact, I do exactly the things I shouldn't do so that love is hard to deliver to me at times. And God has to look at my faults and my weaknesses and say, I'm going to love him anyway. Hallelujah. You need to get this. Because you're no bargain. And neither am I. God didn't get anything by saving you in a practical sense, but some headaches, some problems, some difficulties. He got a wayward kid. He got a son, he got a daughter that gives him grief almost every day. And I'm not talking about the things that we would normally think, but just in the way you think. The way I think, the things that course through your mind in any given day, aren't there things there that bring the Father a lot of grief? And He loves us anyway, because He knows them. They're not getting past Him. I said, going, wow, I didn't know that you had those thoughts. He knows you have those thoughts and He loves you anyway. but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. What a great word. The substitutionary cost, the payment for my sin. You know what? Knowing me, I wouldn't have sent anybody to die for me. Knowing me, I would have just said good riddance. And I want you to be honest with yourselves because it helps you understand the depths of God's love. Now, praise God, grace and mercy abound. Amen. But we're no sweet deal for God. We're just not. He, he sent Jesus into the world while we were yet sinning, actively going the wrong direction. And he says, I love them so much, I'm still sending him. It's always been the plan. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to agapeo each other. Love each other with an undying love. You see how this works? Because of the type of love that we've received, we are mandated to also be the bearers of that same type of love because it's unconscionable to not do so. If you look at what you've received, that's why when there's a problem in marriage and the husband, the wife come to me, maybe there's something that's divided them or hurt them and they begin to make up their case one against the other. What I always do is say, what about the love of God? Because you've received it. And you believe it, and you need it, and you can't get to heaven without it. So is there anything too big for God? And the answer is no. 
The question is, will you let his love wash over those difficulties? Will you let his love infiltrate those things in your life to where they then are seen through the love of God, which is your new identity in Christ? Amen? It's who you are. You've received it. You can't ignore it. There is no other way to get around it. If you haven't received the love of God, then you're not one of his kids. And because you've received it and you believe it and the result is heaven, you have to then live it. And so do I. A second passage I want to share with you this morning. John 13, beginning in verse 31. And I want to draw your attention to when this is because it's very important to the context. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, is, is on the time in Jesus' life directly before his arrest and his crucifixion. This is what Jesus had to say in the last hours of his life. And so when he had gone out, that is Jesus, and he's going out to the Mount of Olives. And he says, and now the Son of Man, that again comes from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus was saying the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, it shows Jesus before God the Father as one like the Son of Man. He is now the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, he hadn't yet given his life. He's the Son of Man about to give his life. I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you but a while longer, and you will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. This is such a beautiful picture of marriage. This was the betrothal period. This was the time when Jesus was going to go away and prepare his house in which there are many mansions. Because guess what? We're the bride of Christ. Amen. He's loved us. He came and made a down payment by the Holy Spirit. He said, here's your wedding ring. Here's how much I love you. And I'm coming back for you. I want you to love me as I have loved you. I've given up everything. I've paid the dowry. It's going to be my blood that's going to pay for you. He said, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so now I say to you, a new covenant. This is so awesome. A new katuba. I'm making a new covenant. The husband of the bride, or excuse me, the father of the bride, the father of the groom would get together and on a piece of leather or a piece of pottery or perhaps a piece of parchment, they would inscribe the marriage arrangement. And for one year, they would take those two pieces to two separate homes. It was a covenant. And then on the wedding day, the shout would come, The bridegroom comes! He's coming for his bride. And they would meet underneath the hoopah. And there, there would be a cup, the cup of joy. that would be passed from the groom to the bride. And she received it, and he would take her into his arms, and they would go to that mansion that was being prepared for that year. Family of God, that's how much God loves you. Jesus is right now preparing your wedding estate. 
He's preparing to bring his bride home. And as a down payment, he came to this earth to declare with his very life, I love you. What more could he do? That's that love that God has for us, and that's the love that's in view in chapter 13. It goes on. New commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you with your life lay down your life for your friend. That you with your life think of others first. That you, when other people are wayward, say, Lord, let me love them. Do you get the picture? Do you see what the Lord's saying to us? And that you also love one another. And by this one thing, one thing, all will know that you are my disciples. The whole rest of humanity will know by one thing that we're God's kids, that we're the bride of Christ, that we're awaiting the return of our prince from heaven, that we have his love fully in view. If you have love one for another, if you agape each other, That's how important love is. A loving church is a church that glorifies God. Loving people are people that glorify God. I've met really smart people that have so little love that nobody wants their intelligence. I've met really gifted people that have so little love that nobody wants their gifts. I've met really powerful people that exercise their power without love and consequently it comes across as barbarism. Do you see the importance of love? That's the focus here. You know, all these gifts that are mentioned here, you know, of all of them, love is mentioned almost ten times more often than all the rest of these gifts, tongues and, you know, prophecy and being an apostle and a teacher and all those things and helps. Love is mentioned ten times more often. What do you think God is trying to say to us? In essence, it's God's heart that's being manifest towards us in love. We can't take love out of who we are. When people tell me, well, you know, I just, I don't feel like being loving. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say that to you? Well, I don't feel like being loving. And it's interesting to me that very often it's circumstantially driven that people say that. I don't feel like being loving. And then they'll name their reasons. Do you realize there's no reason that can be named that would remove the love of God? There isn't one. He loves us with an undying love, Scripture says. He loves us with a preeminent love, Scripture says. In other words, it was first. Before everything else, God was love. If you want to try and define him with one word, it's the only word that works. It's love. 
In essence, it is the superior spiritual gift. But we live in a world, and I want to just spend a few moments in a remaining time, that is so confused on what love is. Our world doesn't have a clue what love is. We use the word love to talk about cars. We use the word uh, love for the three basic food groups, pizza, prime rib, and pie. Style is for me. You know, we use love to describe all kinds of things. Some guy sees a girl, man, I love her. No, what he's actually saying is I I lust after her. It's not love. I desire her greatly. As a matter of fact, it is selfishness generally that begins that process. And yes, of course, it's part of that romantic relationship that is a component of real love ultimately. But it's not love as described here in your Bible. Love is very clear what it is from a scriptural stance. And in fact, we live in a world that has, in essence, an evolutionary view of love. We believe that to a large degree it's genetic. That people are just disposed to to being able to love or to show compassion. And in fact, we assign good deeds as, as love. And we assign, you know, sexual attraction as love. And we just desire in general, well, that's got to be love. And it's not. Matter of fact, it can be exactly the opposite of love in a real sense. When you look at the world, as a matter of fact, I would say to you that if you happen to be one of those persons who for some reason made it here this morning and you believe in an evolutionary model of the world, I can tell you nothing is so contrary to evolution as love. Nothing. Because we should not love. If you believe in evolution, love is contrary to natural selection and to adaptation. Because it does no good, real love does no good for the person who has it. Real love does good to others. And that isn't going to cause you to be the one who survives. You won't be the fittest, because if I really had that kind of compassion, I would actually give up that food. I would actually give up that thing that needs to be uh, in that other person's life. But if I'm just simply a product of evolution, random chance processes over millions and billions of years, then I should actually hate. It's more beneficial to me. You ever wondered why most people have the capacity to love? Because we were made in the image of God. And God is love. It's not just simple philanthropy. That's love latent within the human soul. It's the very evidence of God, if you will, that we even have the capacity to care about other people. And yet sometimes we miss that. We boil it down to chemistry. Matter of fact, Tina Turner, those of you a little older, you remember back in 1984, she had that song, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's a perfect explanation of the world. First verse, you must understand that the touch of your hand makes my pulse react, that it's only the thrill of a boy meeting girl that opposites attract. It's physical, it's only logical. 
you must try to ignore that it means much more than that. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? That is the world's model of love. You take the heart out of it. You take the giving out of it. It's just the attraction of a boy meeting a girl. It's simply chemistry. We even use that phrase, oh, we have a chemistry. That's called hormones. In case you didn't know, it's actually truthful. Chemical reaction, the oxytocin begins to spin and you woohoo. It is not love when a guy and a girl are parked in a car on a hill overlooking the ocean, generally speaking, okay? It is chemistry. It can lead to love, but it's not feelings. It isn't subsequent and secondary. Real love is an enduring, self-sacrificing love. As Christians, we can't have the same love uh, for prime rib as we have for our spouses. Amen? Same love for your car that you have for your children. That doesn't even make any sense. But we have one word to describe love. The Greeks and the Hebrews did not. And in fact, there are three principal words used in the New Testament. There are actually four. The fourth one is rarely used in ancient writings. It's the, it's the Greek word storga. And that, that's like the love that we have in a family. It's a very specific type of friendship, basically. It's very deep. But when you look at the biblical understanding of love, there are actually three words that are commonly translated. And they use them very, very, very differently. You see, you can have eros towards someone of the opposite sex and not care one hoot about who they are. You know how I know that? I've been a camp director for 20 years. You watch the guys and girls go by, they're like... It's all they do. they just like... She is cute. Wow. They go down to the swimming pool. The girls are there. Even though we require one-piece bathing suits, they don't care. Got arrows going on. She looks good. Then the girls are out at the ball field while the boys are shooting archery. Oh, look at his abs. He is such a hunk. And he's got his own car. And five dollars. Ain't agape, okay? It's eros at work. It's sexual attraction. It is that chemistry part that is a part of a healthy marriage relationship, by the way. But only a part. It in and of itself is not love. That's why when a young couple comes, well, we want to get married because we're expecting. That was probably Eros at work. And again, I'm not trying to condemn at all. I'm trying to draw attention to it. You, you can have Eros and not have phileo, which is the next one, and surely not have agape. The second word, phileo, 
It is that deep friendship. It's also part of what every good marriage is and in essence becomes ultimately the central substance of it. Connie and I are best friends. We eros one another and we phileo one another. We have that deep friendship. We love to sit around and just chat and talk and do weird things and do nothing at times. That's what friends do. That is also a type of love. But you cannot build a marriage on eros. You can't. And when you try, you have holly weird. Okay, that's what their marriages are made out of. They're made out of eros, almost exclusively. You know how I know that? When they get tested, they don't last. When someone has a sag or a bag, it's over, okay? So it's like, whoa, you don't quite, you know, no six-pack there. That's, I don't know if that's a two-pack or what that is on your abs there, but not quite working for me the way it used to. That's why when you, when you look at that whole crowd, what you see is a bunch of people who are trying to stay eternally youthful instead of grow old together. Oh, well, you know, she doesn't look like, well, he doesn't look like that. You ever seen Bruce Willis without makeup, ladies? That dude is ugly. <laughs> Got like a beer gut hanging out there. It's like, it's gross. And yet we sit there and on the screen we go, wow, ooh, Eros. Also, not really a nice person to be around. You, you, you see, love, real love, is made out of a substance that's not the substance of the world. It's the substance of God. You can't also survive on just friendship. It takes the real love that God has for us in our relationships in the church and certainly in marriage. And yes, as we, as we look at these two other types of love, both eros and phileo, when we look at those two pieces of the love picture, in marriage they're components. But what transcends both of those things, and what is the highest kind of love is the love that's in view in 1 Corinthians 13. And that is agape. That's that death to self. That is that love that endures and transcends difficulty. That is a love that's consuming. That is a love that's exclusive. That is a love that says I'm centered on others first and even if it costs me everything, I will continue to love. That's God's love. It did cost Him everything. It cost Him His only begotten Son. That's how we know that love is different. And that is the love that we model in our marriages. If you've been married for more than a week, you know marriage isn't perfect. Amen? Maybe more than a day. And I don't say that to demean marriage in any way, shape, or form. I would have it no other way and only the one woman that I've been married to. But it's not perfect. You know why I know that? Because I'm a guy. And my wife is a woman. And she cares about things I don't care about. She has desires and wants and all those kinds of things. I just look at it and I'm going, if I never went to another mall ever in my entire life... Oh, happy day. 
I do not shop well with others, okay? Ask Connie. Come Christmas. Yeah, Jesus. I bear witness there in the back row. Hallelujah. Yeah, there's, there's things about us as human beings that we just think differently, we act differently, we have different concerns, we have different cares, we have different likes and dislikes, and as human beings, you can't put two of us in the same room and say, wow, we're going to survive on Eros and Phileo. Because as a friend, you're going, I don't want to do that. I have no desire to go to the mall. As a friend, forget it. That's where agape comes in. Because now I'm more concerned that my wife is blessed than my not liking shopping. You see, it's a different kind of love. It's a love that says, I want you to be blessed. And I'm even willing to to go do those things which I don't particularly care for. And I've learned how to, well, I can't say like, tolerate shopping. I'm not good at it, but I can go. And I'm using this simply as an example, of course. And there are jillions of things that we could throw out there. Now let me expand on it for just a moment before we close. You see, here's what agape does. Your spouse gets cancer. Your spouse is confined to a wheelchair. You have to wait on your spouse hand and foot for the rest of of their days. That's love. And you do it with joy. You do it with joy. And not the world's kind of joy either, by the way. The joy that only comes from the Lord. The joy that says, you know what? This is short. Heaven's eternal. And what I get to do here is simply a preview of what we're going to receive in fullness in heaven. And so I live out that agape here on earth. And we do those things that are the sacrificial things. You see, you know what kind of love you have when it's tested. Amen? And I pray as our love is tested. I I pray as we embark these next couple of weeks on this journey of looking at love and all of its facets and components. First, at what it is not. It's going to shock you how many of those things in that it is not list that you kind of hang on to. Keeps no record of wrong. Ooh, man, I mess with that one all the time. It's not rude. Ow. Then it gets to what it is. It's patient and kind. Brothers and sisters, I I pray that that love grows in us that's like Jesus. In our marriages, as parents, as friends, as members of the body, as co-laborers, as employees, as employers. I pray that we're so filled with love that exactly what Scripture says would happen. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful. Lord, I'm so grateful.
for the love that you poured out in us and to us. You want to pour out through us. And we pray, Lord, that as we see that day approaching and we ponder what manner of men and women we ought to be. Lord, if no one remembers a thing about us, we pray that they remember that we were loving. We pray that this church would grow in its love, that we as individuals would grow in that agape love, that undying love, that tested love, that all-consuming love. We thank you for the time this morning in your word. We bless you. Lord, increase the supremacy of love in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's offer up a love song to our King. Amen. Amen.